Welcome to Blue Rain's podcast. Um, today we have the honor of uh, interviewing uh, one of the most talented uh, contemporary Western painters on the market today, and Billy Shank. Uh, welcome, Billy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Leroy. Well, I, I just wanted to uh, dig in and go through some of the, the cool things about you. Uh, <laughs> I always refer to Billy as the most interesting man in, in the West. And uh, he really is. He has a lot of stories. Um, he's been painting since, what, the, the late 60s? Well, I started painting in 1964. 64. And then um, I would say my professional career started in 1970. Ah. When I moved to New York, it was one week out of art school. Well, we're going to get to that, too. Okay. So tell us, tell us about your early childhood. When did you figure out you wanted to be a painter? Ooh. Um, I actually didn't figure out that I was going to do this as a career until I was 17, but when I was a kid, um, I just doodled and drew all the time. I didn't take it that seriously. Uh, I can remember um, by the time I was uh, in first grade, there was another kid named Paul Holbrook who actually uh, was a better draftsman than I was. And I remember specifically, I think we were maybe late first grade, maybe second grade, and he taught me foreshortening. I was drawing a horse. And, you know, like you see petroglyphs or whatever, they're just all on the same line. And he showed me how to put foreground oh. legs in front of the background. I thought, wow. For depth. This, yeah. Depth perception. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was just a whole other dimension to my drawing. And then uh, further along in grade school, when it was Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, whatever, I did murals all over the windows, you know, for the school. Sometimes I would do uh, backdrops for the plays in seventh and eighth grade. Wow. So uh, other people took me a little more seriously than I did. Well, they probably saw talent, right? Because Maybe. of the practice, practice, practice. <laughs> I mean, pretty good painter. And the only reason I got to draw so much was because I was always getting in trouble in class, and so they'd hold me inside during recess, so I never got to be a great athlete because I was always in trouble drawing inside. And then when class resumed, you know, I had my notebook out and the teachers were highly impressed because they, you know, saw me looking at them and drawing until someone took a look at my notebook and saw there was nothing written. It was just more cartooning just more and more doodles. drawings. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So did, when did you decide to go to, did, when you went to college, you decided to do art right then and there? Well, right the what happened was my grades <clears throat> were, um, I don't know, astonishingly terrible. And uh, I had, I had to, I w to take, uh, in my junior and senior year, I took my first formal art classes that <clears throat> were being offered in high school. Because I needed to get my grade average up so I could make applications for college. So, and I just barely got it over two point. And uh, I remember my mother and I driving around to different colleges uh, all over the state of Ohio and Indiana. Um, and then I made some applications. I didn't get accepted to anybody, anywhere, any school. Uh, so then as a backup last resort, I put together a portfolio and uh, submitted that with an app, you know, and did a, an interview to to a local art school, Columbus College of Art and Design, and um, I got accepted. So this was all when I was 17. So up to that point, 
I hadn't really taken art as a career seriously, but, but from that point on, that was what I was going to do. When, when you went to um, art school in Columbia University there... It was Columbus College. Or Columbus yeah. College, sorry. Um, right. did, did, uh, were you wanting to study the, the formal art, like the masters, or what, what, was, your, what was your goal? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the first two years, my goal was to be really hip and stay high. And I really didn't pay much attention to any of the classes formally, with the exception of art history. Now that did fascinate me because I was already a student of history. I just loved history. Uh, I also was um, really fascinated with the painting classes. Uh, we were, there were other um, required courses, two-dimensional design, three-dimensional design. I mean, things like you'd learn the Munsell color chart, which is basic to anybody. You don't want to make figurative painting. I didn't pay attention to any of that. Uh, we had drawing classes, and I, I didn't really excel. I, I was already not a great draftsman, and I continued not to be. Um, didn't know anything about color, and I just was bullheaded and persisted on doing, you know, what my own direction was. So I, I really didn't pay much attention, which was unfortunate. And I would just jump forward to say a lot of those basic skills. Uh, I just picked up slowly over a period of time, and even at a more accelerated rate by the time I hit my late 60s. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, I've seen progression uh, in yeah. your career. I mean, looking through the book. Uh, just in the rate, get, recent last yeah. 10 years, there has been. Yeah, Absolutely. your color palette has expanded, your, yep. your clouds, things of that nature. Uh, did you graduate? Uh, well, I got thrown out of the first art school I was in, in 1967. And... Uh, but a friend of mine um, had already gone to Kansas City. He had already transferred his credits. He was a year older than me. And he had gone out to Kansas City Art Institute. And they had a degree program, which the Columbus College of Art and Design did not. And also, and I didn't realize, uh, the Columbus School was also much more oriented towards commercial art, um, like illustration. So they were concerned with trying to help kids get careers with jobs with established. Mm -hmm. And Kansas City was a far different and more progressive kind of school and was interested um, in training people to be fine artists with no practical application regards at all. So what would you say the foundation uh, of, or the beginning of the foundation of your, your style started right there or was it no, after? Um, it was in Kansas City. Uh, I was very influenced by Francis Bacon, as, as were a group of us, including uh, this friend of mine, Stanley Whitney, who was a year before me and had gone out to Kansas City. So I was doing derivative, you know, work, uh, you know, based on Francis Bacon's paintings. And at one point, I decided to take photographs of suited, seated businessmen, like a lot of his, uh, like, early Bacon's paintings were from 1950s up to the 60s. So um, my then girlfriend photographed me, uh, you know, sitting in chairs with suits and ties, sunglasses, sometimes, sometimes not. And I just would, I, so I started working from photographs of myself and just would tape them or pin them up on the corner of the canvas and then, you know, try to reiterate, you know, uh, what that was. How did, how did academia feel about that? 
the, using the, the photographs. Well, stuff. that's when I ran up against the brick wall in 1968. I had the entire um, painting department, including the dean of the of that department. I can't remember, there were seven of them, six of them, or seven of them, came up to my area uh, in my studio and said, "You know, you can't make art." Uh, based on photographs, you have to work from a model. And there being a lot more of them than there were me, I decided not to be confrontational. I just got completely depressed about the whole idea. I didn't, I really didn't know what to do. But then very shortly thereafter, I mean within a couple of months, Ivan Karp, who had been the uh, director for um, Leo Castelli Gallery in New York, had gone off on his own and was going downtown New York into what would become known as Soho uh, to open his own gallery. Well, he had been invited out by the dean of the uh, painting department uh, to do a series of critiques and guest, uh, I mean, lectures. And he brought with him slides of just four artists. Uh, and he showed those. That was John Clem Clark, Chuck Close, Dwayne Hansen, and I think Dwayne Eddy. And these were all first-generation photorealists. Mm -hmm. Dwayne Hansen was doing three-dimensional work, and the others were all doing paintings. And I particularly gravitated towards John Clem Clark's work because he was projecting imagery and cutting stencils and then spraying through it. So he was breaking down photographic images. And I, th I just thought... <laughs> All of this stuff that these instructors were trying to put in my head, they were just full of baloney. Well, it sounds like you found your foundation through photography a little bit right there. Uh, under, oh, pardon me? Uh, through photography for well, the use I of did. stills and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, yeah, I mean, then when I, went, when I went to New York, uh, I mean, really, one week after I graduated from Kansas City or Institute, uh, I proceeded to go back to see um, Ivan Karp at OK Harris, and yeah, I did start using a, um, an opaque projector to project my own drawings so that I could scale that up uh, to these paintings. That was uh, my first group of, um, I'll call pop paintings, and they were based on uh, 18th and 17th century ceiling paintings. So I'd isolate one or two figures, and um, I would do my drawings of them, or eventually I just started projecting the uh, the images themselves with the opaque projector and just more or less throughout my own drawing. And so, and going to your studio today, you'd still find that projector, right? <laughs> Is it the same projector? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I gave up the uh, opaque projector, and I eventually moved over to a slide projector yeah, around yeah. 1974, 75. Mm -hmm. and, it's not the original one. They tend to die after they have a life expectancy. Right, right. But I have around a dozen, and I keep them all repaired, and if something happens or breaks down. But, yeah, I, on average, they last 10, 12, 14 years, and I have stacks of them. <laughs> yeah, I see that. That's awesome. <laughs> They're everywhere. Well, let, let's talk about uh, going to New York and, yeah. and the influence from uh, Velvet Underground, uh, Andy Warhol. Well, and that okay, yeah, that was... Um, I, uh, as an adult, I had gone to New York as a, as a kid with my mom, so I was a little bit familiar with New York. But as an adult, my first trip to New York uh, was uh, when I was 18. It was my second semester of art school in the spring of 1966. And I drove up there with a couple friends and pretty much was broke 
being there, and I thought, well... That's an expensive city. Yeah, I thought, how am I going to eat, and how am I going to buy gasoline to get back to Ohio to go back to school? And I ran into a friend of mine at a coffee house, you know, right at McDougal and Bleecker, which was, you know, the the heart of the uh, Greenwich Village and the whole... um, Jazz scene, rock scene, I mean, everything, you know. Um, Dylan was in the coffee houses there, stuff like that. So I ran into this friend of mine, and I told him I was broke, and he said, I can get you a job with Warhol. And I what? <laughs> I said, I, I, are you serious? Nice. And uh, so we ran out of the uh, coffee house, and we drove over to the Lower East Side uh, to this place called the Dom, which was the Polish-American embassy that... Andy Warhol had rented to sponsor the Velvet Underground. And so they were there for a little more than a month. Uh, and I did meet Andy and they took me under their wing and I just became a gopher just to help, help mm-hmm. sound, uh, set up sound equipment and, and all anything that they wanted, any kind of errands. And then I also crashed with the Velvets because I really didn't have anywhere to stay. I mean, we, I, we were 18 year old kids. We did not plan ahead. Yeah. for anything <laughs> so it was pretty fortuitous that i you know met lou reed and nico and john kale and all the and there was tons of other famous people from the underground if you will uh, from the mid-60s and i was being introduced to them but I, but I did not register who these people were at the time um I was pretty naive. I just you know. were they. Was it that they weren't as well known as they have become after? Yeah, yeah, that's that, yeah. That problem was maybe. Uh, and I know probably. Um, okay, so, you know, like, people like Edie Sedgwick, uh, you know, who was one of the uh, crew from the factory, uh, was there, but that that didn't have that didn't register at all right. with me at the time. And then later, of course, yes, I figured out. Ooh. That person was famous. This person was famous. <laughs> wow. You know, everybody that was anybody was showing up over there every night. But the other significant thing was this was the first um, acid rock band in the U.S. And the, you know, projected imagery up against the backdrop, um, psychedelic atmosphere. I mean, this was unprecedented. Uh, I mean, there's just, you that know, whole group no was ahead of the curve. Little, Pardon me? That whole group was ahead of the yeah, curve. Yeah, they were. Absolutely. So um, did you have any uh, artistic interaction with uh, Andy Warhol or any of those artists? Or no. This was past, and yeah. you're like realizing, no, oh, my, my gosh. I didn't. Um, although, I'll step back and say the very first show that I saw, uh, although uh, I traveled a lot with my mother when we were kids all over the U.S., and we went to... County museums, state museums, we went to science museums, um, archaeology, anthropology, you know, everything except art. My mother had no interest, really, specifically in art. Not that she was adverse to me becoming an artist or studying to be an artist. She backed everything, um, all of my endeavors. But so when I started art school at at the museum associated with... uh, the art school in Columbus, there was a show of Andy Warhol's Campbell, Campbell Soup Cans. Mm. So that's the very first show that I saw was 32 soup cans. And me being a clean slate, I had no idea that this uh, was profound or radical. I just thought, well, okay, this is art. This is 
what they put in a museum. <laughs> yeah, it seemed kind of simple, didn't it? <laughs> it did, <laughs> you know, at the time. So I was aware of Andy. And then, um, you know, with my own work, I was also, like I said earlier, uh, heavily influenced by Francis Bacon to begin with. After I got out of art school and I started doing this pop uh, ceiling painting stuff, I was kind of done with um, Francis Bacon as an influence. Um, I needed to make a term, something that was not as dark as uh, what uh, Bacon represented. So I was totally aware of uh, Roy Lichtenstein's work mm. as well as Warhol. And then the photorealist, you know, were already uh, happening by 1970. So I understood that this was a legitimate approach, you know, to, to making my own imagery. Yeah, so your foundation was set between uh, Kansas and Columbus, and uh, it seemed like you were already deriving a graphic style based off of... I would say from Kansas City, Kansas specifically, City. going to New York. And then, um, I mean, there was other influences, too. Again, this friend of mine who I had met in Columbus College of Art and Design, Stanley Whitney, he comes out to Kansas City, and he's also valedictorian of his class in 1968. And then he's gone on to Yale to graduate school, and then on to New York. So I was following Stanley, and then there was another roommate I had, um, Don Christensen. He was the younger brother of Dan Christensen, and they have his estate over at uh, Llewellyn right now. Mm. He was a color field painter. He'd also gone to graduate school and then on to New York. So this sort of became a reality for me as, as a really young developing artist that if you wanted to have a career as an artist, you went to New York. So. That was my focus, and that's why I paid attention to Ivan Carp to John Clem Clark. So visiting your house in the main living room, there's a little shelf, and it's full of buckles. Yeah. When did somebody <laughs> decide to become a cowboy? <laughs> yeah, when somebody decided. That's a good way to put it. Uh, one decided to do that. <laughs> um, when he got sucked into the entire lifestyle based on the subject matter, that I was beginning to paint. I had done this series of ceiling paintings and then I uh, moved over to doing paintings based on Western movies still. So suddenly I had to become an historian on Western films so that I could figure out what to buy as far as movie stills went. I began watching every Western film there was. Um, and also growing up, I had spent most of my summers in Wyoming. So I was already familiar, you know, with the high desert, with uh, the bleakness of the land, which I loved. I had already been around rodeo. Um, I was in rodeo parades. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of my earliest memories was um, going to the drive-in theater with my grandparents and oh, yeah. uh, watching the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and so I think that's what I, I, I get off your work right off the bat, you right. know, as a... Uh, this romancing of the West, uh, but in a different way, in a contemporary way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, as I was discovering photorealism and embracing pop, I, and then uh, already having seen three of uh, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns while I was in art school in Kansas City, I was so taken with these that by the time the fourth one came out in 1970, and here I am in New York, I thought, God, I want to do with this Western subject matter what Sergio Leone has done on film. 
I want to take Western art in a direction it's never seen before. And so by the time I had that first solo show, I was 24 years old. I began documenting every single drawing, every painting, every print that I would make from that point on through the rest of my career. And I don't want it to sound arrogant, but I know that by documenting this stuff and by doing the kind of subject matter I was doing, that I was going to change the course of the Western genre. Yeah. And I did. You, you, you did. Uh, and then some, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you're considered a pioneer, that Blue Rain is fortunately, we represent a few pioneers in mediums. Right. One of the beautiful things that I, I noticed about you uh, was not your drawing or necessarily the finished product, but the construct of a scene. How do you approach that? Like a landscape, is it a m multiple shots put together? Yeah, you know, even from the very, some of the very first paintings that I had in my first solo show in New York, I had already begun um, separating myself from a purebred photorealist you know, I might have used a movie still and just put everything that was in there into the painting. But then I began quickly to alter backgrounds or I remember there was one I was doing, it was a great train robbery, it was six by 10 feet and the movie still stopped right at the edge of um, the train coming into the train station. And I thought that is too close. I wanted to open up the space some more. So I just invented this whole other landscape to add to it. And from then on, you're layering. I began to layer things, yeah, and not often, but as the years went by, more and more often to the point now, it's extreme. Uh, I'm just working on a painting right now that has 11 slides, as well as my own hand drawing, which I've learned to do a little better. Than well, I that's one of the things, you know, in, in selling your work uh, or uh, promoting you, trying to educate people because you, right. you get a knock, well, that's paint by numbers. Well, this is not the beauty of Billy Shank. <laughs> it's about the construct. I mean, uh, as an artist myself, uh, coming up with new ideas and right. how to present that, that's hard. And you're a genius at it. You, you, you have mastered yeah, that process. The term, you know, paint by number, I mean, I use that loosely just because it gives people an immediate kind of identification when in fact it's way, it's way, way beyond that. I and think they get, they get in a wrong place when they simplify it to right. that. And I didn't realize, um, you know, my studio assistant with me now is Daniel McCoy, and he's Muscogee Creek and Potawatomi. And he said that when he was in school in the 1980s in Oklahoma, he was already studying my art. His father was studying my art, and it was being taught in uh, some of their classrooms. And he referred to it as flat art. And I never thought, wow, flat. And that's, he said, you know, like on Instagram, we have a lot, a lot of native followers, and I never understood why, you know, somewhat my subject matter and all that. But they come from, uh, their original sources are always flat art, their own earlier oh, yeah, yeah, presentations you're right. you're from, right. from the 1920s, 30s, what is, as we know, is the Bambi school that got blown up by Fritz Scholder. But it's flat art. And Danny made that very clear to me. That is the similarity, why they identify with my stuff. You know, that is so true. I was um, at uh, Helen Tyndale's uh, the other day. She's just a beginning artist, comes from a famous family. 
Uh, her great-grandmother was Pablita Velarde. Her grandmother was Helen Harden. Uh, but when she, she inherited uh, part of the estate, she went and cleaned out Grandma Pablita's old closets and tons of drawings on um, grease paper mm -hmm. that she used to replicate over and over. And that's what you're talking about. Those <laughs> right. flat art scenes, you know? But, yep. So I can see how that, that, that's an see, interesting all point. I did is I married Pop with photorealism. And by flattening most of the areas uh, of color, um, I just took photorealism and pop to a different place uh, mm -hmm. that's uniquely mine. Yeah. I mean, there's been a few other people in the world who have occasionally gone through a paint-by-number system, but they go in and out of it. I mean, yeah. I've watched those careers. I may be a series of paintings, but nobody has made an entire career of trying to, to take flat painting based on photographs to the extreme that I think that I've been able to do. Yeah. I wanted to go through a couple of the, the scenes um, that I, I really like that you do. Uh, tell me about the Cadillac series. <laughs> um, it, was, it started in 1964 uh, <clears throat> when I was dating um, my then-to-become-wife. Uh, she wanted to see this movie called HUD. I didn't know who Paul Newman was. I didn't know what HUD was. I'd never seen a Western on the big screen. I'd seen stuff on TV. So she insisted on us going down. Uh, that was to the Ohio State campus, and this was in 64. And here's this incredible existential contemporary Western written by Larry McMurtry. Martin Reed is the director. And it's a black and white film but Paul Newman is driving around in a pink 58 Cadillac. So when I got involved with the Western lifestyle, I thought, man, I gotta be cool like Paul Newman. I have got, <laughs> I've got a, I gotta have a pink 58 Cadillac. So I- uh, Those were long, weren't they? It was like boats. Oh yeah, I mean, and you had to be a millionaire to drive them. They cost, I mean, you know, two or three miles, miles to the gallon. That's yeah, crazy. How much they eat gas. So anyway, and as I'm evolving into this lifestyle, I'm rodeoing, you know, by 1976, you know, riding bareback saddle broncs in the local rodeos, um, and becoming, of course, extremely aware of, you know, uh, the idea of being a rodeo guy with a Cadillac, circling back to Paul Newman. Um, so then I just decided to start painting this stuff. I think it was around 1977, 78. So uh, I had also another friend who was an Osage uh, Indian from Oklahoma who was a stockbroker. And he drove Eldorado convertibles everywhere until he crashed them. And then he'd get another one. So I started photographing him uh, as, as my subject. Cadillac cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> then when we were in Scottsdale, Arizona, I thought, oh, I don't have to just use, you know, brand new Eldorados. He said, hey, I'll just go to the, and on these car lots. I'm going to have 58, 59 Cadillacs. And um, he would go under the pretense of wanting to, uh, being interested in buying a car. Can I test drive it? Well, by this time, George and I had already pre-decided when he came off the lot, Where the he would meet me <laughs> at these different locations. And so we just photoshot all this stuff. And then two hours later, he'd take the car back, you know, over to the dealership, but I've got, you know, rolls of film, I've got slides that I can make all these Cadillac oh, that's cowboy awesome. paintings. <laughs> well, I, I love that. Uh, can you explain how your nudes 
uh, are different than the average? Yeah, let me just start with, when I was doing these black and white, working on the black and white movie stills, I remember I had one, um, and I can't remember what movie it was, and here's this dead cowboy laying in the street, and you know you can see the buildings and, and horses in the back, and this woman in her pioneer dress is coming up, and she's all upset, and I threw her out of the painting and just had the bad guy laying on the ground. And I remember stating to my friends, I'm never going to paint women in my paintings. It's always <laughs> going to speak cowboys. Wow, did I eat those words. <laughs> so starting in 1980, I was then living with Ann Coe, who became uh, kind of a, a pop uh, Western uh, artist on her, herself with her own career. So she became a model for my contemporary-looking um, cowgirls, and that was in 1980. And... I realized what I was, from then on, uh, as I shot, I had already done other photo shoots that were nudes and this and that with women, and um, I was presenting a point of view of women being empowered, as being not shy about who they were or what they were. They had machismo, I, mean, I don't know if there's such a word in Spanish. You mean when they're a little naked and holding a gun belt around yeah, their Yeah, right. With yeah. sunglasses, cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, <laughs> guns, pistols, bandoliers. And, you know, I like to say, and it's true, I was doing this 10 years before Hollywood figured out to present the same kind of personality in Thelma and Louise oh, in yeah. 1990. Yeah. Yeah. And there's was, another Cadillac that, scene in there too. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Well, it was convertible. I don't know if it was, it was a, Yeah, it was a, some type of big boat. But anyway, it was, in my mind, that was a, the, the female uh, equivalent to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It was this romantic, you know, uh, ride off into the West. Do but, they sometimes seem out of uh, context and sometimes in your placement? Or is it purposeful? Because you, all of a sudden they're, they're in the woods in the wild and... Oh, you mean my nude cowgirls? Yes. Well, yeah, they're everywhere. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, this goes hand in hand with, you know, later uh, I invented, um, I think it was around 1990, the caption paintings yeah. that I've, you know, proceeded with all these years since. And originally I had a, a character named um, Cliff, who was my quintessential iconic Western cowboy. And then later there was a guy named Jeff. But... I deliberately spelled him G-E-O-F-F, and to make it a little bit more fey, a little not as tough as Cliff would be. And then along came Phaedra, and Phaedra I lifted straight out of Greek mythology, and I just brought her to the Southwest, and she's no longer fatally attracted to her stepson that causes you know everybody to commit suicide in the in the Greek mythology. I've now made her this beautiful, exotic, nude cowgirl who just rides on her adventures across the West <laughs> on her horse, oblivious of who else is around or who sees her. She doesn't care. And she's no longer involved with men. She now has a herd of wolves that are trailing along with her. And you just see her sometimes riding through a scene of whatever else is going on, and she's not even... Yeah, it seems like it. the scene is irrelevant to that. It's awesome. That's, a, that's some great thinking on that. So tell us about those caption paintings. Um, when did well, you come up with that idea? 
Well, obviously, that goes back to Lichtenstein. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, by, oh, when was it, 1980, I started doing halftone dot paintings. And I was really concerned because I knew I was living in the shadow uh, to do this kind of work of both Lichtenstein and Warhol. So it, um, I didn't want to appear derivative, but I already had my own kind of subject matter that was different than what they were doing. And then I also decided to use my movie stills um, and put in a word balloon, a caption. And it, that just started an entire different direction along with the halftone dot paintings. And as time went on, I felt more and more confident about carving out my own area, even though the original concepts you know, may have been derivative from both Warhol and Lichtenstein. I made that world my own. And how does humor play into all that? Well, that's been my greatest survival instinct. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, there was a lot of dark stuff that happened when I was a kid, but I know I, um, I survived always with having a, a pretty fine-tuned sense of humor. Yeah. I liked the idea if I could make my mom laugh. Mm -hmm. And I was good at it. Yeah. Then I could make my classrooms, or classmates, laugh. So that's how you got your skills. You had a, you had a hard <laughs> one to please there, huh? Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay, so going, going back to the buckles. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. What were those buckles? Well, as I evolved into this rodeo world, um, I was terrible as a bareback and Santa Bronc rider. I, I didn't cover anything. I had no money, no nothing. And then later, in the mid-90s, um, Somebody invented team penning, and then it evolved into ranch sorting, and so both of them. And we had horses, this was 94, 95. And uh, some folks that I knew in, in the Tetons, uh, where I lived in the summer, in the Jackson Hole area, uh, these ranchers um, I had used as models. And so they told everybody they knew in the northern part of the county uh, about, um, what this team penning sport was, everybody come over with your horses and we're going to show you how this works with cattle in an arena. And so they gave us a demonstration, they taught us the rules, uh, or described the rules to us. And then they said, why don't everybody here uh, put together teams? And the teams were of three. So I got together with an art dealer friend of mine who was staying with me, and we loaned him a horse, and uh, Kathy Whiffler, who's another... Um, Western um, plein air painter. So we were the only all art team, and they we formed 27 teams, and we came in second place wow. and won some jackpot money. And I knew right then just the way Sergio Leone had altered my life in 1970, having this group get together. I knew I was back in the saddle in the arena, and I could go be a rodeo cowboy again. That eventually evolved into me winning. A world championship in 2009. Woohoo! Yep. Felicidades. <laughs> and four state championships and a pile of other buckles. So all the buckles are your your trophies. That's yep. that's what that's about. That's a yep. lot of hard work and, and yep. passion, right? Yep. And so that's that's led to maybe some of those rodeo scenes in your paintings and yep. stuff like well, that. Well, the rodeo scenes came before. Before. And then I started building the lifestyle. Yeah. Yep. Well, there's some uh, point to legitimacy as a person that lives what they preach in a way. Credibility. Right? Credibility, yes. <laughs> Authenticity of intent. Yep. And we talked a little bit about landscapes. Uh, the, the way you portray cowboys and cowgirls. I saw a scene in here 
I'm trying to find it. Like the, uh, well, right there was, that's where they are. Where'd you get the ideas for the vesture from the movies? For the, for the, for, for the vesture. Like they're, how they're dressed. Oh, oh, this is actually, you know, um, let me just go ahead. say that uh, the definition, classic definition of, for pop art is appropriation. And aside from shooting my own slides, I also use all kinds of subject matter from all different kinds of sources. This that you're pointing to is specifically a 1914 Collier's Magazine mm. illustration. And the color of her shirt and scarf weren't exactly that. I just changed, changed it. Changed it up? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I really like the way how you do your cowgirls. Yep, that's, that's, that's Rebecca. Sunglasses. Yep, right. yep, that's Rebecca. I mean, at this point, we have tons of our own wardrobe. Um, yeah, I saw the props, have, the guns, the yeah, hats, yeah, the setup is, everything. Right? All that stuff. In fact, I'm doing a new series right now, and I'm calling them my cowboy descansos, which in concept has never been done. They didn't exist. They don't exist. I saw the one that you posted the other day on Instagram with the sarape over the, draped over the descanso and the six shooter right. on that. Yeah, so we've done four photo shoots yeah. with that so far. And I'm, uh, in some cases, I you know, go over to Randy Rodriguez and borrow um, more different hats because props. he makes all kinds of hats for the movie business. Um, we'll use, I've got the pistols, the old Navy Colts, the holsters. The uh, different pairs of boots, and that's easy because we have, you know, 20 pairs of boots around the house, and some are old and beat up and all that, so I use those. I borrowed some spurs from Randy, but I've got plenty of our own, so I keep changing that up. But some of those also, there's our Bud, Budweiser bottles, Modelo, Corona, Hennessy. Uh, I just go along the road and pick that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> what I, there's, I go up on the... I know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> well, I go up at sunset sometimes when there's an interesting sky to shoot skies for potential sunsets for paintings. So I just walk up and down the road and here's all this litter and I just take a shopping bag with me. So I've got two shopping bags full of all these little beer cans. Props. Of right. <laughs> so then we go to, into the arena, you know, at our house uh, in the morning and we just did another shoot Sunday morning, you know, uh, for two hours and just rearranges stuff. And I, uh, Rebecca's back in those. I had her on her own horse and she's got a 73 Winchester rifle and uh, she had a Serapi. So made it happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Look, there's, there's one, there's one last part I want to cover. There's okay. probably tons more stuff to go through, which we'll do. We'll do a studio tour with you and, yep. and go okay. through some of these other things. Uh, the surfer girls. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, that, of course, came later, but uh, as I've seen um, surfer movies and then surfer documentaries, uh, I, I just think they're fantastically beautiful and iconic and romantic and ultra dangerous, which I like in both rodeo and as well as the big wave surfers. And um, I just decided I wasn't going to paint the guys. This is in reverse of what I said in 1975. I'm only going to paint the surfer girls. So not having any direct access to any real surfer girls or being at the beach, at this point in history, I just go online. And, and search and, some things. And out. I just, yeah, we just search and search and well, they're, search. Well, they're very beautiful. I, uh, I, where do those go to? Uh, Hawaii? 
Did you do a show? No, out there I was that? going to, and then that didn't happen. Uh-huh. Uh, I had them on the West Coast for a while, and mm-hmm. then there's been a couple in uh, in Europe. Yep, in England. In England, they got sold. Um, how was it to have? How did you feel about the Briscoe uh, presenting your work alongside Andy Warhol's? That was was well, that a couple years ago? Yeah, well, that show was. Uh, I mean, Michael DeShaman is the director of the museum. Uh, it really is the first academic to see a, what he thought was a huge significance uh, between my career and the work I've done and what Andy Warhol had done on two different levels. First, he was a, you know, a major impact on me by 1970, just being a pop artist. But then later in his own career, actually the last year he was alive, he did this whole series of um, uh, serographs that were completely Western genre. And before that, in 1963, he had done the one set of paintings of Elvis uh, from one of the Western films, although not with a hat. So um, Michael decided that was worthy of doing a museum retrospective of my career and and that portion of Andy's work. And we're also building a catalog around that, and that shows traveling next to Great Falls, Montana, and then down to uh, the new Western Art Museum in Scottsdale. Oh, great, great. So, Well, I think that'll do it for today. I uh, appreciate you coming in, Billy, and giving us a little bit of history lesson sure. here. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, you're, we, we love the heck out of you. <laughs> so, well, we'll look forward to hanging out at your uh, studio uh, in the next few months when things kind of calm down a little bit more. Um, Thank you everybody for listening to Blue Rain's podcast.